Well, I'm not sure if you're prepared for this, but you might be a little prepared for it. I want to ask you, what's, uh, what's your idea of paradise? What do you think might be your idea of paradise? It's kind of a, it's kind of a big question, isn't it? When I think of paradise, I probably put it in the form of a vacation. I mean, everybody wants to take you know, a flight on a jetliner, right, to a, to, a, to a paradise location and just really enjoy some rest and relaxation. I, I think that's a laudable thing. Uh, I, I kind of tend to, to put those two things together. A few years ago, when the boys were still little, Julie and I took uh, a series of family vacations each fall to the Gulf Shores. Uh, the Gulf Shores, that's right, it's called the Redneck Riviera. So, you know, sort of par- redneck paradise, I'm not sure. Uh, but we, you know, and we would rent a lovely house, a lovely beach house, uh, you know, nicer than the house we lived in. And the weather was just beautiful. It was warm. It was sunny. Uh, it was love. There was no rain. And, uh, and the, the beaches were just powdery white sand. It's like running on talcum powder. It's just unbelievable. And the color of the water is this, I don't know, it's blue and it's green. I don't know if that's azure, but it's just an unbelievable, not what I normally see water look like, water. And it was just gorgeous in the Gulf of Mexico. And the water in the Gulf of Mexico, which is sort of next to the Atlantic Ocean, you know, Casco Bay is kind of next to the Atlantic Ocean, but the, the water in the Gulf is warm. It's warm. And, 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 and after, you know, playing and having lots of fun with the boys, the boys, you know, Sam was probably 10, Jacob's about 8, just having tons of fun on the beach and in the water, you know, we, would, we could drive to the original Oyster House and just eat wonderful seafood. I've, I'd drive a long way for fresh seafood. We don't have to here, but man, it was really good. And you could eat anything, anything that you wanted you could get to eat. You know, and, and sometimes we would bring home shrimp for a shrimp boil there in the cottage or, or, or maybe some red snapper to grill. And it was just wonderful, heavenly, uh, paradise-like. And I was with my favorite people. Time away from work, and, and here I am with, with my wife and the children that the Lord has given me, and just a time to not labor but instead to rest with them. It didn't mean we didn't do anything. We did a lot of things and had a lot of fun together at rest with one another. You know, what I've always loved about going to the ocean, the beach, is just its vastness. Its vastness. To look and from just peripheral vision to peripheral vision, from, from all of the horizon the vastness of it, to know that God created this as far as the eye can see. God made this. To know that the beauty and the glory of creation, as beautiful as the Gulf of Mexico is, is just a dim reflection of the glory of God. To know God's provision of all the delicious seafood I could possibly eat. And to enjoy it all with the people that I love the most. To have extra time to be at recreation and rest with my wife and sons, the family that God gave to me. This was just paradise for me, about as close as as we've gotten on earth in many ways. Those trips were a little bit like paradise. And I always remember paradise as being something that's very good. It sounds a little redundant, doesn't it? But you remember that God said at the end of the sixth day, it's very good. And we're going to take a look at what it looked like on the sixth day and the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2. 
This morning we're going to see a picture of paradise. Paradise. It's beautiful. And it's good. I mean, you just have to, just a side note here. A paradise that's good, not a paradise that's here in a fallen world, as pretty as it may seem, but a paradise that's good according to God's holy and righteous standard. And it points us to the beauty and the goodness, I think, of God's gospel. Not only God himself, which it certainly does, but Christ himself, who will redeem this paradise. Christ who tells the thief on the cross next to him, you'll be with me in paradise. It points to him. And so let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed... And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Well, as I mentioned in my overview sermon, Genesis is divided into 10 sections, each beginning with this phrase, these are the generations of, or this is the account of. And each one of them focuses our attention on what it is that matters. Remember, God doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but he tells us everything we need to know. And the Bible focuses us that way. And here's the very first one. In Exodus, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. We just read about God's creation of everything in chapter 1. The question is, is the Bible going to continue to focus on everything? No. From this point on, the Bible is going to narrow its focus on mankind. The Bible's even going to focus, narrow its focus on one family, if you will. So in this section, we get uh, what we get is greater detail of, of, uh, of the creation of man, both male and female. We get a picture of paradise, followed by paradise lost in chapter 3. But we also get the promise of the seed of the woman who will come one day and restore all things. And then we get to this next marker. We get to the next marker in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam, next section of the book of Genesis. The story is carried forward through Adam's descendants, beginning with Seth, but all of Adam's descendants are wicked and deserving of judgment, except for one righteous man named Noah, which is when we get to the next grammatical marker. You can see the pattern and how this is working. It's in chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Do you see how this phrase keeps the story moving forward? and keeps the story on focus. Now, is the Bible going to focus on all the wicked peoples of the world in Noah's day? No. It's just going to narrow the focus onto Noah and his family. In fact, the next, for the next four chapters, it's all zoomed in on Noah. Because Noah is a type of the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3.15. God is going to bring the flood of his righteous judgment on all of the wicked while at the same time rescuing Noah through judgment. Noah receives salvation through the judgment of the wicked. Noah is not the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of the woman, but he's a picture of it. And so Genesis even tells us how to read Genesis. When we get to Noah's generation, it says, pause here. Something really huge is happening that you need to understand, and we're going to spend some time on it. That generation isn't just a list of names. It's a saga to take, take in. And the whole story of the Bible is focused on the line of people who will result in Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of the woman. We receive salvation by faith through judgment, the judgment of G- on Jesus for our sins, you say. The Word of God does not tell us everything we want to know, but it tells us everything we need to know, and the Bible is all about Jesus Christ. Back to chapter 2. I just want you to see how those those generations are going to flow and how it's going to narrow our focus on what's important each time we go to them. Now, chapters 2 and 3 really fit tightly together. They really are just one literary unit. But they just won't fit into one sermon. So chapter 2... Our sermon today is, is, is kind of paradise created. And chapter 3 is going to be paradise lost, so to speak. You can see how they break in the middle. So this sermon is really just the setup for the next sermon. 
but you need to know that they really go together. And just as we started in chapter 2, we're, we're, fine. we're just getting going. You know, we, we back the car out of the driveway, and we hit the gas pedal, and we immediately come to a speed bump. We, immediately hit a, we hit this speed bump in chapters in verses 5 and 6. Some people get a little confused by these verses because they, they overlap with parts of chapter 1, but they don't seem to line up in an obvious way. You may have noticed as we read them, but I think we can clear it up pretty quickly. Because because chapter 1 is clear, that on day 1 God made light, and on day 2 God made the expanse. On day 3 God made the dry land and separated it from the seas and covered it with vegetation. Next, God made the sun, moon, and stars on day 4, and the birds and the fish on day 5. Then on day six, God made the animals on the earth, and finally he made man in his own image, male and female. But when we read these verses in chapter two, it sounds a little different. It might sound like God made the man first, and then the plants, and then the animals, and finally the woman, his obvious crowning achievement. Ladies, remember I said that. Men, you need to remember I said that. But, but that's not, that wouldn't be a correct reading. That's not a correct reading. This is one of those verses that is simply difficult to translate, and so there have been many, for centuries, many different understandings. Let me walk you through mine. Bushes and small plants are new words. They're new words for vegetation in chapter 2. They are plants different from those that we read about in chapter 1. So there's, there's no contradiction here. There's no tension here. The reason there were no small plants, by the way, that, that word small plants throughout the New Testament, it, it means plants that bear grain. Grain. is because there was no man to tend them. The reason why those plants weren't there was because there was no man to tend them. These are cultivated plants, and they require a farmer. But there is no farmer yet, so there are no small plants yet. The reason there are no bushes, he says bushes of the field, in other, in other places in, in the Old Testament, that word, those small bushes of the field, or bushes of the field, is, it's scrub, bramble. It's the stuff that's out in the wilderness in the desert places. The reason there are no bushes is because there was no rain. I think, it's not written in stone, but I think these plants would not come until after the fall. I think they're like the thistle and the thorn that the land will bring forth as a result of the curse in chapter 3, verse 18. Thorns and thistles the ground shall bring forth and you shall eat of the plants of the field. Well, so what? Why is this even here? Well, remember, Moses' original audience. The Israelites who've been living in the wilderness for the past 40 years, preparing to cross the Jordan River to take possession of the promised land, they were painfully familiar with the scrub and the bramble and the, and the thorns. Just as you and I know about thistles and charlie grass and crabgrass and weeds. But there were no such things in the garden. There were no weeds to pull in paradise. And maybe they thought 
they could have been a little more thankful for the manna that God had provided for them in the wilderness. I mean, the account is not just to tell us about the plants, it's to tell us about God. The second clarification is just to confirm that although there was, in addition to the rivers that we read about, no, no rain, there was a mist. Mist is really, almost every commentator says mist is not, this isn't the most accurate word here. It's, it's a spring. There was a spring that watered the whole face of the ground. Water welled up and watered the face of the ground. And that's all we know about it. But, isn't that a lovely feature of paradise? I haven't managed to fork over the money for an in-ground sprinkler system yet. Not really planning on getting there. But what a lovely feature of paradise. And the last or third clarification is found down in verse 19, just in case this is a hiccup. Verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of heaven and brought them to the man. He's not forming them then, This is a reiteration of something that God had already done. He had already created uh, the animals. The Lord God had created them. Now he's bringing them to the man in the garden to name them. So hopefully we've cleared up the speed bump just a little bit and can move on to bigger and better things. Listen to this. Did you notice that the name of God changed in chapter 2 from chapter 1? In chapter 1, he's referred to as God, the, the Hebrew word Elohim. It refers to the creator God that is described there, his power and his majesty. But now he's referred to as Lord God. The Hebrew word Yahweh is added. Now, now that's a difference maker because Yahweh is the personal name for God. See, as we zoom in on God's creation of man, male and female, he's not just the transcendent God of creation who you might think is far off. But he's also Yahweh who's personally, closely, intimately delighted in his forming of man and his making of woman. The whole thing reads different than chapter 1. Even as he creates man and places him in the paradise, God, the Lord God, is active. We saw this in chapter 1. Look at, the, look at all the verbs. Look at all the things the Lord God does in chapter 2. The Lord God formed. The Lord God breathed. The Lord God placed. The Lord God made to spring up. The Lord God took and put. The Lord God commanded. The Lord God said. The Lord God caused. The Lord God made. The Lord God brought. Is Genesis chapter 2 also about the creation of man? Yes, but even more, it's about God. You can't read all of those sentences and all of those verbs with God as the object and and say, this isn't about God. It's all about God. And so look at verse 7. Then God, the Lord God, formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I want you to Use your sanctified imagination for a moment. It'll help some of you to close your eyes. Just for a moment, imagine that you're Adam at this time. You're Adam, and what is your first conscious experience? It's the presence of God. 
It's the presence of Yahweh. To wake up to the very face of Yahweh. While breathing in life directly from Yahweh. What's the first thing that you know in creation? Yahweh, your creator, and the life he's breathed into you. To wake up to the very face of Yahweh, to breathe in life directly from Yahweh. And you know, he has deliberated, even anticipated making you as a living creature. And now he's done it. And he is so pleased and delighted. Have you thought about that that way? Also, here's where, here's where God names man. Up until now, we've read about man, meaning mankind or people. Man, both male and female. Now we read about the man, and the article, the, indicates that God is, has, is calling the male image man, which is Adam. It's, it's no longer generic. It's this man. It's the man. It's Adam. It's the same Hebrew word, but now it's used uh, as a given name. And what is man? There's a lovely philosophical question. What, what is this man? Well, first, first, man's humble. Man's humble. God reached down to the ground and took dust, and he formed the man out of the dust of creation, and so the man is forever linked to the creation. Man is completely dependent upon God for everything, just like everything else in creation is. He is the creator. We are his creatures. That is our starting point. Whether believer or unbeliever, we are all humble before God. The main point being what? We are not God. We are not part of the creator. We are part of the creation. And we are humbled before him and dependent upon him. And there's a little Hebrew word play here. You know, uh, the, the words are the same. The word, the word for Adam, man, is the same as the word for earth that he's taken from. From Adam comes Adamah. But look at how the Lord God elevates the man. He's humble, but look how the Lord God himself elevates the man to the pinnacle of his creative work. First, think back and remember how God deliberated over his creation of man, male and female, back in verse 26 of chapter 1. He thought about it. He paused and considered it. Not so the other living creatures. They just sprung up. Remember how God created man in his image, male and female. Created in the image of God. Man is, man is moral. Man is upright before his creator. Now, man is not yet perfected. He is not in a perfected state. He is subject to change. And in chapter 3, he's going to change. Unlike all the other living creatures, God breathes life directly into the man. Face to face if you will. And, and God has, we talked about this before, a will and a purpose for man as rulers and priests in his world temple and in his holy garden. This man 
is the head of all men to come. I've got good news and I've got bad news, right? He's the father of all his descendants, meaning that all who come after him will have a share in him, in Adam. That's why the Bible says that we are created in Adam. And the welfare of everyone who's in Adam will depend on his welfare. Which makes Adam's rebellion in chapter 3 so far-reaching. So tragic when we understand that the paradise lost due to Adam's transgression. It's a huge fall. We have man who's humble, and yet we have God himself who, who of his own accord, who of his own accord values man and raises him up to be a co-laborer in the garden. Look at verse 18, speaking of the garden. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided into four rivers. And we read about those, the Pishon in Havilah, uh, the, the Gihon and in Cush, and then the Tigris and the Euphrates. Look at what God has invited Adam into. You know, as a kid uh, living in uh, Illinois, of all places, uh, off our backyard and a couple doors down, there was a neighbor. We thought they were a rich neighbor. They, were like, they had like a bigger house. And of course, our backyards are facing one another. And they have a house and a terrace and a swimming pool. Oh my gosh, a swimming pool. And so we're all kids, and I'm, I'm younger than my brother. And so, see, kids would go and they would just stand at the fence, right? In the summer when it's hot and humid. And, you know, they would, hey, why don't you come in? Like, like, like I don't know, it seemed like there were hundreds of children in this pool. It, it, it was just the biggest party going on anywhere. It looked like paradise. But I, I was too young, so I just stood there at the fence and watched year after year until we moved when it was time for me to be able to go into the pool. But anyway, it was just, you know, there's just this, there's just this wonderful, wonderful place that, that, that God invites Adam into. And that is the right and basic way to look at God's actions. Adam is on the earth, but God formed Adam somewhere outside of the garden such that he placed him in the garden. The garden that the Lord designed and built for himself to rest in. This is where God rested on the seventh day. This is shocking. Adam didn't have it all just because he was created on earth. He got even more when God said, I'm just going to take you and put you right here in the garden with me. He placed man in the garden to enjoy God's rest with God. It's a display of God's love for mankind. It was an upgrade. God fills the garden with every beautiful tree. God fills the garden with every delicious fruit. And there's a spring that waters all of it. And the garden is far above, far and above, in beauty and providence, 
uh, providence, all of the rest of creation. It is the best place. It is the choice place on earth. And at the center of that garden was the tree of life. It's kind of as if the whole, whole garden is either emanating from the tree of life or the whole garden is looking towards the tree of life either direction. I think the tree of life is meant to serve as an emblem. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think the tree serves Adam and us as an emblem. It's an emblem that represents three things to Adam. First, I think that the tree of life stands as a reminder to Adam that life comes from God. God gives life. God places the tree of life, plants the tree of life in the center of the garden, puts man in the garden so that he can always be looking at and remembering that life comes from God. Why would Adam of all people need a reminder about that? I mean, what is this, day one? Week one anyway. Because one day, Adam may be tested. Someday, Adam may be asked, is God good? Can God be trusted? Would you like to try life on your own without God? And if Adam would heed the constant reminder from the fixed tree of life that life comes from God, he would be better prepared to pass that test. I think the tree is an emblem that reminds Adam that life comes from God. Second, I think the tree enforces the command of God to eat from it. Did you notice that that was a command? We often miss this in verse 16. God commands Adam when he says, surely you may eat of the tree of the garden, which would include the tree of life. It's subtle. But doesn't the command from God come to, to come and eat from the tree of life sound like an invitation to fellowship and life with God and his rest? Since all life comes from me, come to me. Remember to come to me. Come to me and have life. Here's, here's one way to say it. Come. Take. Eat. And have life. Christ calls the weary to come to him and have rest. Christ says he is the bread of life. Come. Eat. And have life. The tree was God's constant invitation to fellowship with him and to enjoy in his rest in the garden. Third, I think the tree implies a growing and greater future relationship with God. Remember, just because just Adam was created, he still got an upgrade. And I think there's a future upgrade awaiting Adam if he would pay attention to the tree of life. Adam doesn't know all there is to know about God yet, does he? And Adam has not exhausted the pleasure of God's company yet, has he? There's more. There's more of this good thing. Surely, Adam's regular and reaffirming acceptance of God's invitation results in a deepening relationship with God. Remember, 
Adam is in man's original state, but he's not in man's perfected state. He can change. And if he can change in one direction, he can change in the other as well. I mean, I think that has to be part of the test of the two trees, one of life and one of the knowledge of good and evil. If this one leads to death, can't this one lead to greater life? Even for Adams, there is a more glorious, more permanent state to come. A level of holiness and a status, a state in which he can't fall. We know that because we've read the New Testament and we're looking forward to our glorified state when we can't fall. Adam didn't have that, but I think he could have. That's why I think the tree represents a hope, a future hope in God, even for Adam in the garden. And the tree of life stood as this emblem. Remember that life comes from God. Come. Have that life. There's a future for you in this life of a greater glory and a permanent glory. Do you see? Do you see what a tree of life looks like? After the fall, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is gone. We don't hear about it again. But the tree of life reappears several times in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. There is knowledge. There is the knowledge of good and evil in one of the trees, but the wisdom of God is in the tree of life. Go to the other end of our Bible. The letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 reads, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What was the problem, by the way, with the church in Ephesus? They had lost their first love. What was Adam's problem in the garden? He lost his first love. Jesus conquers. To the one who conquers, I will give to eat from the tree of life. Jesus conquers. And he conquers all who love him, and all who love him will partake of the tree of life in the garden, the paradise of God. Listen to Revelation chapter 22. Beginning in verse 1, last reference. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The tree of life is in the city of life, where it's watered by the river of life, and it bears the fruit of life, 
and the nations are going to be healed by its leaves. And the only people who will be there will be those who believe in the Son of Life. John chapter 1, verse 4, we've looked at it many times. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And His servants worship Him. Sounds to me like life is found in Christ. And Christ is calling you to come find life in Him. And that through life in Him, you will have an even greater and more glorious and secure life to come in that city. From the tree of life in the midst of the garden, it, it, it's almost as if we're, you know, we're, we've got a, a camera mounted on a drone and the drone camera just kind of lifts up and gives us a bit of an aerial view of the garden and Eden and the waters around it. There are many rivers and treasures of gold and precious stones and fragrant oils. And then we're told again in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely eat. Die. Well, they're to, they're to worship God in the garden. Worship Him, serving His glory. We've talked about this before. Adam is to worship God by, by obeying and serving God. I think those are, those are two strong foundations of this worship. You are to obey and serve God. He's to magnify the glory of God in the temple, God's temple. Which, by the way, includes keeping the garden free of talking snakes. Keep it as guarded. And God lavishly provides for Adam to do this. He has a bounty of food and a helper, whom we'll see in a moment. But worshiping God is also not just serving, but obeying his word. There are two trees, I believe, in the midst of the garden. I think when, we, I think when we're told to look at the tree of life, I don't think, you know, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is on the other side of the planet or something. Like, you know, if you just won't go there, it won't be a problem for you. you know, it's just, it's, I think they're there together. It's a two-tree together test. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are there in the midst of the garden. Both trees together form a test for Adam. We're going to look at it more next Sunday. Uh, we'll choose life as he's experiencing from God in all of his goodness and glory, will he do that? Will he choose the tree of life? He's already experiencing all of its goodness. Or will he choose to decide for himself what is good and to decide for himself what is evil by experiencing evil and its consequences? You get that word knowledge, right? This is the tree of the knowledge. It's not just data, it's experience. Eat of this tree so you will know evil. We'll look more closely at that next time. But the choice is clear. It's clear as it sounds. One tree leads to life, the other tree leads to death. Actually, as the Hebrew puts it, another one of those wordplay things, uh, the tree of the living you shall live or the tree of the dying you shall die. 
it'll be a test for Adam. For now, it's all part of the setup for the tragic events to come in chapter 3. But first, we need to see the completion of man and woman. Pick up in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There is uh, something glaringly missing in this recounting of the sixth day, isn't there? And God highlights the fact by, again, deliberating on the creation of the woman. Taking his time. Notice God is not responding to a complaint, right? There's nowhere where Adam says, hey, a little lonely down here. Can we do something about that? Can we talk to management? This is another creative act of God for his glory. He did this. Another step along the way that will be very good. Man in the image of God is male and female. And so to complete man, God will create woman to be his helper. This is all in the mind of God. It's not at all in Adam's mind yet. Which is why we have this next little series of events that take place. So It's not in Adam's mind, so God puts his servant Adam to work, naming the animals. First job, here we go. Here's what I want you to do. And God brings this parade of animals to Adam, and and Adam practices his discernment. Remember what we learned about God naming his creation in chapter 1? Naming involves two things, understanding the thing you're naming. He understood the quality and properties of light when he called it light. He didn't say, I'm clueless. You're an unidentified object. That's what I'm going to call you. No, he knew its properties, and he named it accordingly. And it means having the authority to actually name it. So there's a dominion aspect. God has given the man responsibility for the animals, so he gives him the authority to carry out his responsibility, beginning with naming the animals. And Adams knew at this, right? Adam's new at this, and so I, I love this. There's just this, this little hint. Um, uh, he brings the animals to the man to see what he would call them. So God's observing. Maybe kind of supervising a little bit. Maybe Adam's on a little bit of a probationary naming uh, aspect here. And, and, so here's, and so here's Adam, and, the, and God brings the animals to him. A, aardvark. B, bear. C, Cat, he's, you know, he's, he's naming the animals as they're coming. I'm sure that they came in alphabetical order, otherwise we wouldn't have the song that way, but we do. 
And so, so Adam's, what's Adam doing if he's naming animals? He's practicing his discernment. He's practicing his understanding of what God has brought before him in the naming of the animals. And through this exercise, you're like, why is this here? Why, isn't, why wasn't this before that God declared to make woman? There, why is this here? This exercise is here because Adam comes to realize what God wanted him to come to realize through the process of naming all these animals. All the other animals have a matching companion to help them bring glory to God. But for Adam, no such companion was found. And just as the light comes on in Adam's mind, before he can even file a complaint, God makes a woman helper fit for Adam. Because God did it. It's God's design. He makes him a helper to help with what? To help fulfill their mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. To help them fulfill their mandate to be image bearers in the garden for the glory of God. You see, a helper is not a lesser status. I'll let that sink in. I know it's only a theoretical concept for us in our day and age, but a helper is not a lesser status. It is not a lesser role. Helper is a function. Helper is a function that is attributed in Scripture to God himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 7, Moses asks God to be a blessing to Judah by being their helper. And God's not offended by that. With your hands, contend for him. And be a help against his adversaries, Moses prays. Haven't you prayed to God for help? And hasn't God been a helper to you? And were you looking down on him when you asked him for help? Because he performs a helper function? No. In Psalm 33, verse 7, describes us and God in this way, in this helper way. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. What's God? Well, he's a helper. We don't think less of God because he loves us by functioning as our helper. He doesn't lose his position or his status. Is it lessened because he performs the function of a helper? Is it? God's people look to him as a helper probably as much as they look to him for anything else. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. You've prayed this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Which Lord? The one who created heavens and earth. God's a helper from creation. Yes, God establishes male headship here, foundationally. He formed the man from dust, taken from the ground, making him a part of creation. He makes the woman from a rib, taken from the man, making her a part of him. And Adam wakes up to see 
that God has brought into existence a new creation out of man for man. Equal, but not identical. Complementary. Together, they complete the image of God. The image of God, male and female. It was not good that only half the image of God was in the garden. Now the complete image is present. And all functions necessary to be fruitful and multiply are present in God's temple. Now listen to Adam's response. In verse 23 again, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know, you just can't read this. These words of Adam, Adam's first recorded words. He named the animals, but we didn't hear him. We hear him here. Adam is not merely making a theological statement here. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, blah, blah, blah. No! Adam is ecstatic. Adam is elated. Notice how God brings the woman to the man almost as a father gives his daughter his prized possession to a fitting man at their wedding. See, God gives Adam responsibility for this woman. And Adam sees and understands who she is. He recognizes her quality as the female half of the image of God, and so he names her. But this is more than the biblical account of how a woman came to get her name. Adam named her Isha because she came from Ish, from man. A little Hebrew wordplay, but we see it in the English as well, right? Man and woman. We see it in the English as well. I believe that Adam is making a covenant here. He's not just saying something true. He's not just responding with true words, but a true commitment to the woman. She's bone of my bones. She's flesh of my flesh. He's taking an oath. He's Taking a marriage vow, if you will. Male and female are profoundly related, sharing the same flesh. It's where one verse later the one flesh idea comes from. They literally do share one flesh. And Adam is promising to fulfill his responsibility to God and to her when he makes this statement. And this becomes the pattern. This becomes the foundation for God's gift of marriage, his right ordering of society through the marriage of one man and one woman forever and the filling of the earth with families from those marriages. The 
The married couple's no longer two, they're one. Everywhere one goes, the other goes. Make decisions together. Live life together. You see that? And then there's one final pronouncement in verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. In the garden and in Adam and Eve's lives, there was no shame because there was no guilt. There was no sin in the garden. You know, if the earth didn't change at all, but there just wasn't any sin, I would call that paradise. But it's so much more than that. They experienced innocence because they were clothed with dignity. Does anybody even want dignity anymore? Look at the picture. Look at this picture. It's paradise. It's paradise. They're surrounded by incomparable beauty and bountiful provision. It's better than a trip to Gulf Shores. They're equipped for every good work to serve and to obey God and to enjoy God. They're innocent and upright in the presence of God. Just no, no, God, I, wish you, I, just, I just wish you couldn't see this got this little thought in my head, this little thing in my heart. I wish you couldn't see this. None of that. They're innocent and upright in the presence of God. Has God withheld anything from them? What more could they possibly want? It's paradise. And it's very good. And as we pause right here in the middle of chapters 2 and 3, as we pause right there, Adam and Eve and all creation are poised either for greatness or for tragedy. And we know what will befall them and we know why. So consider this paradise. I mean, think for a minute. What does Adam have to lose? Adam, please. Please look at what you have to lose. Everything. All that is very good. Paradise, innocence, experiencing the rest of God in his presence forever. All of that was lost in the fall because of one sin against the Lord God who had breathed life into him and placed him in the garden and given him purpose as an image bearer. I mean, how do you even qualify or quantify that? It was everything. It was paradise. And it was very good. But where the first Adam failed, a second Adam will succeed. 
we will see this and more. Again, the true Son of God will take on the form of a man. Jesus became like man so he could serve man for the glory of God. Is this sounding a little familiar? He came first to pay for the lives of men with his own life. He hung on a tree outside the garden to atone for Adam's sinful race. And he rose from the dust of the ground to breathe the Holy Spirit of life into dead sinners to make them living beings again. Is this sounding a bit familiar? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes beginning in verse 45, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you hear the hopeful call to the tree of life? Here's where life's found. Come and get it. Sinner, turn away from your sins that will only end in death. And come to Jesus who offers only life. Can't you see what you've thrown away? And in the same picture... See what you have to gain in Christ. Dear believer, do you have a vision of what is yours right now in Christ? You should. When will you stop playing at Christianity and playing at church and come and eat and have fullness of life in Christ? Faith is your means to salvation. Faith is your means to the tree of life. And the gospel is just reminding us this morning God alone gives life. Come to God through faith in Christ and have the hope of a fixed future in paradise which can never be lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord God maker of heaven and earth, giver of life, sender of your only Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us that we might live, who even now is interceding for us, and who soon and very soon will restore everything even better than it was at creation. And so we bow down and we humble ourselves and we, we commit by the grace of God to serve God. And we commit by the Spirit of God to trust and believe and speak your word. Give us grace for these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.